a radio show that confesses Christ without confusing the law and the gospel. A radio show that takes scripture seriously without taking ourselves so seriously. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. The reason is because you don't have the sacraments. See? Yeah. I mean, once you don't have the sacraments, then basically everybody's a pastor. Because that's what a pastor is, a guy that's there to preach the gospel and minister the sacraments. Once the sacraments cease to mean anything in your theological construct, then ministry becomes something different than the giving out of God's gift of forgiveness. The reason why we go to church is not to hear about how we have to go out and, and be missionalists. The reason we go to church is to get the forgiveness of our sins. That's why Jesus instituted the church. And I think that's the point. See, when a pastor considers this option of, hmm, maybe I'll substitute these parts of the liturgy. Maybe. The, maybe. the question before him should not be, will it win more people over? The question before them should be, would this deliver Christ in a better way than it already does? And the parts of the liturgy are direct quotes from Holy Scripture. And I don't think that you can improve upon the delivery of Christ uh, from them. I mean, just imagine the next radical that shall be even more radical. This will be the book that I'm going to write. Even more uh, radical. What part of cutting off your hand is unclear in the Bible? <laughs> if you still have two hands, you show yourself to be a false disciple of Jesus. <laughs> Lowering the standards of mediocrity one show at a time. This is Table Talk Radio. And today's program includes... Right, oh, hey, Pastor Wolfmiller. Let me write down what we we're supposed to do. Lo lower the standards. I just want to make sure I know what's on the agenda today. Lower. The, <laughs> I, I don't think that has to I don't to want be, to forget. That doesn't have to be on the agenda. It's one of those things. It's an, uh, It just happens naturally. In any case, our I show lineup today... I'm glad I didn't have to do any show prep for this. That's right. <laughs> Includes our friend, um, Pastor Warren Graff, is going to be back on the show. He is almost our Man, new co-host. We don't here. do anything anymore. Mm -mm. Yeah. He's outsourcing, <laughs> outsourcing excellence. <laughs> That's right. We're also going to do a little Witch Ladder and a little Since bit of 2004. Prove It. Do you remember that game Prove It we used to play? Oh, yeah. Those are my favorite games. Yeah, yeah, they're my favorites. Yeah, so, which ladder and prove it on my list of favorite games? I just have to tick, uh, check my list of favorite games tattoo on my forearm, and I see here right at the top is prove it and which ladder. You should get some tats. Hey, when we get a new Table Talk Radio logo, you should you should get it tatted somewhere, like on your bicep. Or I something. did. I think this logo idea <laughs> is starting to stick with me. The idea of a sumo wrestler with Table Talk Radio just on his belly. <laughs> And then you could have that if tattooed on your, that up, on your belly. Be <laughs> Let me oh, just search irony. Google Images for sumo wrestler with Table Talk Radio tattoo. Okay. All right. Um, I think we need to start with some buzzwords. So I have a buzzword for you. I'll give you a little bit more time to find one. Um, okay. My theological buzzword for you is karma. Um, this is a Hindu thing. And it's the idea of uh, reward and punishment. And it, it kind of goes along with that uh, belief of reincarnation, you know, that uh, in a previous life you were like a cow or something. And, and if you uh, are a good cow, then you'll be reincarnated as like a person. Uh, maybe if you were a super good cow, you'll be reincarnated as like a rich person. But if you're bad and you're a bad cow, <laughs> you get reincarnated into something lower. So the point of life then is to be good. So you can be reincarnated, and you know, if you do good, good things will happen, and you'll be reincarnated into something better. So that's the idea of karma. Hey, what do, what do you th think uh, being a bad cow involves? Um, I don't know, but I mean, isn't that interesting? I mean, because they, they, that's the reason they don't like. I mean, how you know how can you live such a bad cow life? That you got to come back as like a, like a rooster or whatever. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. What's the morality defining a good cow life? That's what I want to know. Hindus. All right. If you could call our, I didn't even want to know it until like two seconds ago, and I know, then now I do want to know it. If Bad. You, if you are a Hindu, all I care about. listening to Table Talk Radio, could you please call our Hindu hotline at one eight hundred three eight five Karma? When, I mean, 1-800-385-SOLA-7652. Uh, 
All right. Do you have a bumper my favorite for me? bumper sticker, by the way, is my my karma ran over your dogma. That's my. <laughs> you remember that one? <laughs> my buzzword for you is propitiation. Uh, now, I think the easiest way to define propitiation is to um, contrast it with expiation. Very, very close uh, concepts and close words, um, but both have to do with the uh, undoing of an offense. Now. Uh, uh, propiti- expiation means taking away the cause of offense, and propitiation means restoring someone's uh, good favor. So let's just say you had a car, and I put a rock through the windscreen of your car, and now you're angry at me. The reason you're angry is because I destroyed your window, uh, and the result of me destroying your window is that you're angry. Now, when I pay to have the window fixed, that is expiation. And then when the result of that is that you're happy with me again, that's propitiation. So uh, so the scripture talks about Christ as the, he's both the expiation and the propitiation for our sins. He's the, ones that, he's the one that takes away the offense and uh, restores our good favor with God. Nice. All right, I got that down. Um, now, if you have... Any questions or comments about anything you hear on the program, you can give us a call, 1-800-385-SOLA. You can also send us an email, questions at tabletalkradio.org. And uh, the first game that we have up is a game called Prove It. And this is where, Pastor Wolfmiller, I throw a theological concept, idea, point, uh, assertion at you. And if it's true, you have to prove it from the Scriptures, Okay. And um, Peter, listener Peter, okay. is helping us out with this. Uh, Peter says, hey, guys, I enjoy the show, and thanks for doing what you do. Well, Peter, you are welcome. I think my low expectations allow me to really enjoy the show. <laughs> hmm, okay. Anyways, um, uh, I come from a— That's great. Low expectations, <laughs> low disappointment. That is the theme here. That's Peter, the way we roll. Peter says that he comes from a brethren tradition— and is wondering how you would get from Scripture that only pastors slash elders can administer the Lord's Supper. Okay? So that's the prove it to you. Now, I think you'll need to describe what Peter means by elders here, but but uh, in the uh, in the Lutheran uh, belief, we have, in, according to the Augsburg Confession at least, that only those who are rightly called should uh, preach and administer the sacraments. So, um, Go. Yeah, I I think that um, if I could suggest it to Peter that we're working backwards, uh, and so we wouldn't say that it's, it's uh, the distribution of the Lord's Supper is limited to the uh, to pastors and elders, but we would say that uh, the thing that defines the office of pastor and elder is the distribution of the Lord's Supper. In other words, that the Lord would call people to publicly exercise the office of preaching, and teaching and administering the sacraments is what makes a pastor. So um, it's not, it's like saying, uh, the, so I, I hear the question, like, why, why are you only saying that mothers can give birth to children? And the point is, that, well, that's what actually defines what a mom is, is the giving birth to a child. You see, you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, so that w- when we look at the office of pastor, what we see is a man put into the, into the public ministry for, uh, precisely for this purpose. But now, I think the text that we would maybe cons- consider first. Well, before is you go be there, before, before, before you go there, I want to test that a little bit. So, let's say um, Joe Schmo comes into church and then he says, "All right, I'm going to administer the sacrament." Uh, would you say, "All right, Pastor Joe Schmo is here today"? <laughs> well, no. Uh, you wouldn't, but if you, if you have a, say you, you know, you're traveling, um, uh, to Bermuda with a bunch of other people on a boat and there's no ordained person there and you get into a, a, a crash and now you're all sitting around and you say, Hey, well, we're Christians. So we should, we should have preaching and baptism and the Lord's supper. And, and so then you say, well, we, we should appoint someone to oversee those sorts of things. And then you would, ha- you would have a pastor. Sure, um, but you but would, you would put it together like that. But I mean, with the analogy of the mother, of course, uh, one could only be a mother if she has had children. Or what? What, what is that? What the function you brought up was? You can care for children or have children. Something yep. like that. Okay, but yep. but yep. obviously the problem with that is that no one can just uh, uh, automatically just you know, give birth or something like that without being a mother, which is your point. But I'm saying that it is possible for someone 
who is uh, not called or ordained to do the function of administering the Lord's Supper. So either it's not the Lord's Supper, or uh, they would have to be then a pastor. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, well, or at least they're acting in the office of pastor. Now, we would say that um, uh, that if someone was doing that, that, that's a, it's in fact, um, especially when we talk about baptism, uh, there is a possibility uh, that there's an emergency sort of situation, uh, and that opens up the um, the the option of basically anybody uh, being the pastor and baptizing. Uh, so when you have an emergency like that, now when it comes to the Lord's Supper, because this is the public uh, office of the church, there is no emergency Lord's Supper. It just doesn't exist as a category. It's not. It's not a real thing. So that we're going to be following the um, the kind of the order. That the that the Lord gives, and and it's especially then in First Corinthians that Paul's talk, talking about that. So I'm, I'm going to kind of roll back to the text. Now it's in First Corinthians that that Paul writes that God is not a God of disorder, but of order. But especially this text in chapter four, where where Paul writes, "Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and of stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful." But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, etc. So that Paul is talking about, well, he's talking about the office of pastor there. And he says um, the pastor is not every man, but a particular man who's called um, to into this office. And how should that man be considered? Well, he should be considered a steward of the mystery of God. So that when the Lord is giving us his mysteries, this is the, the this is where we, by the way, get the uh, the the Latin word sacrament, the the Greek word there is mysterion, which goes into Latin as sacramentum. So it, sa- it says, let a man so consider us as stewards of the sacraments of God. So that this office of the pastor is um, those who are put in place to publicly give out these gifts of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And anything ap- uh, different than that would be a um, an act of disorder. It's, a, it's putting things out of order and making them uh, chaotic. Huh. All right, we need to take a break. I want to follow up with some questions after this. Whoa. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. It's really classy up here. Table Talk Radio will be right back. I save all the good stuff for grappling with the text, a little video Bible study that you can find at worldvieweverlasting.com. And we're back on Table Talk Radio, playing the yeah. game Prove It. And Pastor oh, yeah. Wolfmuller has defended the idea of pastors administering the sacrament from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now, uh, how about this, Pastor? So uh, let's say um, I'm at your church there in Hope Lutheran Church, and, and um, you know, Pastor Flammy is out, uh, um, you know, jumping out of airplanes or something like that with parachutes. Um, and you are uh, going on a Jamaican cruise, and uh, yes, probably that's on, a, on, very likely. <laughs> and I'd say, Pastor, uh, no worries. Um, I am am uh, your uh, head usher, and what I see you do up there doesn't seem all that difficult, all that challenging. I mean, I could stand up in the pulpit and, and say a few words, and then I'll give bread wine to uh, everybody, and we'll have communion, no problem. Now, would that make me a pastor? Why or why not? Well, it would it would put you acting in the place of a pastor, uh, and in some ways, I think we want to say plainly. Well, in fact, it would make you a pastor, just like coming to communion at a church makes you a member of that church. And the question is, was that what you want? I mean, this is not something that we just, you know, um, uh, do lightly. I mean, one of the one of the problems with the way that we live today. Uh, the the way we interga- in, in, engage with the world is we think that nothing is of any sort of permanent significance. So this is especially we see like in the hookup culture, 
where a man and a wife, or sorry, a man and a woman go and pretend like their husband and a wife and wife for a night or for a week or for a whatever, and there's no sense that that is a, a lasting and ongoing sort of thing. And we, the last thing we want to do is take the hookup culture and bring it into the church, you know? I mean, so you just have like a one Sunday morning stand in the pulpit. Uh, that, that, that's a completely inappropriate way to engage with the seriousness of the Lord's Word and the gifts that he gives to us there. Um, so, uh, so you know, the, my favorite song, If You Like It, Then You Better Put a Ring On It. This is the same thing we should say to the people who want to preach and administer the sacraments. Like if you, you like it, then you better it. get ordained. Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> if you like it, then you better put a stole on it. <laughs> oh, my. I don't know about that. Uh, <laughs> don't, oh, 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 don't know about that. Oh, 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 All right. Uh, if you have submissions oh, 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 oh. for Prove It, send it to questions at tabletalkradio.org. <laughs> Next up, we're going to play some Witch Ladder. And the way this, this is sent from a note from Alex. Dear Pastors Wolfmuller and Gagland, greetings. I had a question for you regarding a form of Buddhism called Pure Land. Oh, so we're playing Witch Ladder with this. So, oh, you were going to explain the ladders, I bet. Let's go. Read read the email, then I'll go. I don't know if you guys have encountered it before, but I was wondering how you might approach it from a Witch Ladder perspective, seeing as it claims to be a grace alone belief system. I talked with Jeff. Who's this guy? Oh, from Virtue in the Wasteland podcast, and he sent me a link of some basic descriptions of two most common forms, Jodoshu and Jodoshinshu. Uh, any insight would be helpful. Thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. Alex. All right. So three ladders. Give us the ladders. Patrick. Well, how this the, the rules of this game are that you have to uh, consider these material in front of you and then ask the question, what ladder is this trying to climb to reach up to God? And this is, uh, you have three options. Uh, is this the ladder of the mind, in which someone is using their intellect to try and reach up to God? Um, is this the ladder of the emotions, in which someone is trying to feel their way up to God? That is, through their um, uh, through mysticism, that the, 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 the feeling or the sense of God's uh, immediate presence, that is to say his presence apart from means, the external word or the, the baptism or anything like that, but through through my inward connection with him, uh, or is this the ladder of the will, that I'm going to use my, uh, my morality, I'm going to be good enough to reach up to God. So uh, we have found that um, all other religions are trying to either... Uh, uh, think their way before God, to uh, emote their ways before God, or will their way to God. And it's striking to find out that Christianity is the only one that has not the uh, man climbing a ladder, but God as man climbing down the ladder. Uh, that Jesus comes to die and do the work and to rise again, that we might be saved from all of our sins and our trespasses. And uh, that is what Christianity is about. It's not about getting man to do a thing, uh, doing something so that he can be good enough before God. Uh, th- look at this thing, the difference between Jodoshu and Jodoshinshu. I did not wake up this morning wondering about the difference between those two things. Really? But now I'm interested. Okay, so uh, uh, th- read, read a little bit both, about these and I'll see if I can yeah, get it. Both A and B are based on the primal vow. A emphasizes the recitation of the name, whereas B stresses the mental state of entrusting to Amida. Wasn't she the queen in Star Wars? It may be noted that those who say that the Nembutsu do not necessarily place absolute faith in Amida, but that those who have absolute faith in Amida unfailingly recite the Nembutsu. What? Oh, that that huh. is... Thank you for clearing up that distinction for me, Pastor. Jo- Jodoshu <laughs> tends to encourage voiced nimbuchu, whereas Jodoshinshu <laughs> accepts both voiced and soft nimbuchu. Oh, okay. Jodoshinshu speaks of, quote, natural nimbuchu, <laughs> but Jodushu encourages, in quotes, the followers to make a great effort to say the nimbuchu. <laughs> What the heck's the Nimbutsu? You, you keep reading. I'll find out. <laughs> I bet I bet Graf knows. 
Are you trying uh, to outsource number this of, to Graf too? <laughs> the number of nim- this is where we need Lumpy. The number of Nimbutshu recitations is often oh, emphasized in Jodushu. This is the but in Jodshinshu, the number of Nimbutsu is not important. The Nimbitsu is a special chance to show mindfulness of the Buddha and achieve spiritual awakening. Uh, it says pure land Buddhism uh, and it, oh, also pure land Buddhism and its practice. The members of is the that what we're talking recite, about? Pure yep, land Buddhism. Yep, that's it. That's it. So it's the huh. special chance to show mindfulness of the Buddha. Is it a certain to sound a certain way? Are there certain things that you say? I don't know. I can. I mean, do you, if you're going to start paying me lumpy salary, I could look into this a little bit. I'll, all right, I'll do the work then. It follows that <laughs> Jodushu, uh, followers of Jodushu make great efforts to recite the Nimbutsu until death when they expect to meet Amida's coming to welcome them to the Pure Land. Followers of Jodushinshu do not expect this because they are peaceful and happy in Amida's embracing light. What is that? Is that the Nimbushu going on back there? Mm-hmm. They don't have a children's uh, a nursery or something? They don't have children's Nimbushu. This is the Nimbushu. That must be pretty important. I'll just <laughs> that sounds like me making fun of Fort Wayne grads right there. <laughs> see, I oh, here comes the whole choir. I'd like to see the <laughs> see. This is not seeker sensitive at all. <laughs> That's right. That's right. This sounds like speaking in tongues to me and really, really slow. <laughs> How come? How come the differences between the two feels like reading a rubrics book in some old, you know, Roman Catholic how to do the liturgy? I don't know. And this is supposed to be grace alone. Essential to all right. Hey, I'm clicking on a different button here. You got to turn that nonsense off. Uh, the, here's the essential teachings to uh, of the Buddha. Uh, and. Orthodox Jodu Shinshu Buddhist Teachings, official website of the Amidaji Temple. Point one, you are not your body. Got that? Point two, the Buddhist teaching on man, desire, and comfort. Oh, these are just links to click on. Aspiration to become Buddha, the most important matter. About, ah, here, this is it. About Amida Buddha and the Pure Land. I try to explain here in easy terms who Amida Buddha is and how we should understand the Pure Land. First of all, what is Buddha, or more exactly, the Buddha is not. A Buddha is not somebody like us, although some point in his history he was. You know what that sounds exactly like? Hmm. The Mormon doctrine of the Heavenly Father. As we are now, God once was, etc. Yep. Uh, In a well-known dialogue, Brahman called Dana... A Brahmin called Dana asks Shakuanui Buddha who he is. Sir, are you a god? No, Brahmin. Are you an angel? No, Brahmin. Are you a Yaka? What the heck's that? No, Brahmin. Are you a human being? No, Brahmin. When asks, are you a god? You answer, no, Brahmin. When asked, are you an angel? You answer, no, Brahmin. When asked, are you a Yaka? You answer, no, Brahmin. When you ask, are you a human being? You answer, no, Brahmin. Then what sort of being are you? Brahmin, the defilements by which, if they were not abandoned, I would be a god... Those are abandoned by me, their root destroyed, made like a palm tree stump, no longer subject to future arising. The defilements by which, if they were not abandoned, I would be an angel, a yaka, a human being. Those are abandoned by me, their root destroyed, made like a palm tree stump, no longer subject to future arising. So the answer is, he's a palm tree stump. Ah, okay, got it. Did you get it? Yeah. All right, so... Is this all coming together for you? <laughs> now... I think I know something about this. Pure Land Buddhism is because it has, unlike other Buddhisms, Pure Land Buddhism has this character, Amida, which um, uh, which it comes to us as a savior. So people like to see the connection between the Pure Land Buddhism and Christianity. But I'm afraid, friends, that that that, that similarity is thin like rice paper. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, I mean, so in, in Buddhism, as well as, I mean, the Pure Land or any other 
variation. The whole idea is to what deny one's um one's suffering is am I thinking of the right thing here? So that that be yes. a, a correct. Uh, well, you don't deny the suffering. You 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 rise above the suffering by being disconnected from your passions. Ah, and that is done through this whole meditation thing, right? Right. All right. I, um, we need to take a I break. Mean, that's part of it, the we're, eightfold path, etc. We're we're out of time for this segment. When we come back, we'll talk about Ooh. how Pure Land Buddhism addresses uh, the ladders to reach God, and then we'll be joined with Warren Graff to play Ten Commandments in the News. Table Talk Radio can only get better from here. We'll be right back. Podcasting before it was cool. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. The daily Bible meditation blog is at rightlydividedbible.wordpress.com, where three chapters of the Bible are considered each day. Check it out. Which ladder is the game? Table Talk Radio is the show. We are talking about pure land Buddhism and this idea oh, that yeah. through the work of meditation that you free yourself from the sufferings of this world and ugh, what uh, reach some kind of a level of purity, go to the pure land. Uh, this, by the way, is yeah. mysticism. The uh, ladder through I, you emotion. Know, uh, here, I'm, I wonder about the, the difference between the Pure Land Buddhism. What? What? Are you worried that I'm saying something? I wonder about the difference between the the Pure Land Buddhist and the normal Buddhists. That would actually give us, even though as strange as it might sound, a, a kind of. Um, a frame of reference. Don't worry. You keep talking about mysticism, and I'll do the work here. Well, I, I think. Remember when we did the praise song cruncher? Remember that long time ago. And um, you used to have on the praise song cruncher checklist thing. I think that, by the way, would be a good T-shirt. That you'd have the praise song cruncher criteria upside down on the front of your T-shirt, so that while you know, like you look down, like you're maybe like in this certain. A prayer during the praise song, but really you're just looking down at the checklist. You know, is Jesus mentioned? Is this highly mystical in form or content? Do you like that idea? So it's, uh, I do. I love that idea. It's, a, <laughs> it's subtle. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Imagine the look you'll get. That's my favorite thing about it. <laughs> hey, look, at the, I found a page here on the Internet, on the thing called the Internet. It says, Pure Land and Zen Buddhism Comparison. Nice. Uh, ready for this? Ready. Pure Land Buddhism offers a path to enlightenment for those who are unable to endure long rituals or meditation. So they rather w wish to be reborn into the Pure Land where enlightenment is easier to accomplish. By doing so, they recite the name of Amitabha Buddha, which does not help them into the Pure Land, but rather expresses their gratitude towards the Buddha. Amitabha means immeasurable light, but is also known as Amistus, meaning... Uh, who knows? Zen Buddhism is an attempt to understand the sole meaning of life. It requires an immense amount of discipline and leads to ultimate freedom. So basically, Pure Land Buddhism is for the lady, lazy Buddhists. <laughs> well, so th I think this goes back to the original emailers saying that this was supposed to be this kind of uh, grace-centered Buddhism. Um, and so we'd be tempted to say, oh, this, this can't be a ladder because um, it's not necessarily re uh, what demanding a thing that you do to get to pure land. However, I would say that the the practice of the religion is still pure mysticism because I mean, look, you're gonna be you're gonna be uh, putting yourself in the certainty of going to pure land in something, and what is what are you placing that certainty in? And I think for the Buddhist who's uh, going through this this um, this chant that Pastor Wolfman made me turn off so rudely earlier in the program, um, <laughs> someone who's doing that is engaging in the act of mysticism for their certainty. So I think it's still mysticism. 
Okay, if you say so. I think it's like Jack mysticism, though. You know how we talk about like the Jack Mormons or the Jack Catholics? They're just like Catholics in name only. What would that be? A Kino? Or a Mormon in name A Mino? Or a Jehovah's Witness in name only would be a Juino? <laughs> That's pretty funny. The Luther. This is kind of Buddhist in name only. A Bino. I got it. So do you... <laughs> So, uh, you agree with me then? Do you think that's uh, uh, mysticism? Yeah, it's mysticism. Any sort of Eastern religion is by definition mysticism. And by the way, that's what they want to be. You know, everyone, you're like, ah, you guys on Table Talk Radio, you're so mean. You're typical Fort Wayne guys. You're just so insulting and mean and degrading and racist and boring and everything else. But the problem is with that insult, dear listener, is that the Buddhists are trying to be mystic. When we call them mystics, it's not an insult. Same as with the praise song, uh, praise song leaders, by the way. Anyway. Right. Probably no one was actually saying that we're mean and racist. Nah. But just in case someone comes along and says that one day, right. now they've got a rant to go for it. Yep. Okay, let's do a little Ten Commandments of the News to get us warmed up for... Um, Pastor Graf coming up in the next segment. The content portion of the show. <laughs> right. Um, so, right. Uh, do you have an article there, or if not, I got one. I got one here. Are you ready? This yep. is uh, this will be great. Uh, warming friendship. A man and a penguin forge a bond over thousands of miles. A Chinese proverb says, speaking of Buddhism, a Chinese proverb says that when you save a life, you're forever responsible for it. And so it goes with a widowed fisherman living on a remote beach in Brazil and his small but loyal feathered friend. He calls himself Jing Jing, and without fail, the Magellanic penguin returns like a prodigal son after disappearing for days, weeks, and even months to reconnect with the retired bricklayer, Jaao Perez de Souza, the human who saved his life. So... He, what's the story? <laughs> it's a guy who has a pet penguin who keeps coming home. Oh, okay. Uh, so Ten Commandments in that. Um, the, okay, so the, the <laughs> This is category... so obvious. I don't know how, how you could possibly miss the obvious Ten Commandments. <laughs> the category for pets is the Seventh Commandment. Um, or you might say the... <laughs> Uh, the Tenth Commandment, so that you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or manservant, ox or donkey or penguin or anything penguin. else that belongs to your neighbor. <laughs> right. Sometimes pets can, and when we're talking about animals, they can go into the Fifth Commandment, namely, we can eat them. Um, but I'm not sure if you eat a lot of penguins. I don't know how that goes. Wait, so if I, if I kill a cow to, ha to eat a hamburger, that's a Fifth Commandment thing? Yeah, you're in fact keeping the fifth commandment, not breaking it. See, the cow is giving you life. The cow, oh, okay. if it refused to be killed, would be murdering you probably. Do you see how that works? <laughs> I see. So uh, a, a vegan who uh, would try to prevent me from eating that burger would be a, a breaking the fifth commandment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. Murderers. <laughs> okay. Those vegans are murderers. All right. Well, I got they an article never for you since that. yours is so boring. Um, <laughs> I thought we should bring the penguin to graph and see what he says. <laughs> this is a prayer dispute between Somalis, Somalis and uh, plant reshapes a Colorado town. Again, it says, this is in uh, Fort Morgan, Colorado. I think that's not too far away from you, Pastor Wolf Miller. Not too far. Nope. Uh, the work is far from glamorous, it says. The uh, thermostat for much of the slaughterhouse is set near freezing. The clatter of machinery is almost deafening, and the matter of slicing cattle carcasses every day, eight hours a day. But for the Somali refugees who settled in this community on Colorado's eastern plains, jobs at Cargill Meat Solutions has become a path to the American dream. The positions start at $14 an hour, et cetera, et cetera. Now, it says... Um, that this job allowed for workers of the Muslim faith to pray. Uh, quote, if I can pray, I will do whatever I need, says Abadakadar Ali, 28, who loves to cut, or sorry, <laughs> doesn't say loves, who used to cut fat five days a week wearing a medical pr protective vest and gloves. 
Uh, the heart of the. <laughs> let me just skip to the heart of the the thing. So, um, uh, when a new manager came on, he refused to give this particular worker time in the day to go pray, and uh, and he said, "Fine, I'm leaving." And a hundred and forty nine other uh, Muslim workers also left the plant because they were not. This one worker was not given time to pray during the workday. All right. Yeah, yeah, I've heard this is a big story around here. I mean, that means I've heard about it, and I normally don't hear about news. <laughs> so, what do you think? Yeah, so, okay, let me ask deal. you this: if uh, if you own a business and um, yes. you are not going to discriminate on the basis of religion who you hire, are you obligated as a worker to provide times for all of your workers to pray according to their religion? Uh, no, you are not obligated. I mean, you now, can't, this, you is, can't this is bring not your. To a worker. We, sh- we should say, disclaimer, that uh, Pastor Wolfmere is not a lawyer. Uh, he is not giving <laughs> lawyer <laughs> legal advice. Anyway, continue. Right. Yeah, that's pretty. I mean, probably a lot of people thought that I am a lawyer, you know, and that <laughs> I they mean, were going to. I mean, I'm just, I, I charge I, like $700 for the hour that people listen to this show. Right. In but, fact, uh, probably a lot of people is, is not only mistook me for a, uh, a a legal scholar in the United States, but also for a Muslim legal scholar too. <laughs> but I'm glad that you've cleared, cleared that up. I'm just thinking of the <laughs> uh, business owner who's listening and gets slapped with a lawsuit and says, "Hey, I was going okay, on so the l- advice of counsel that I don't have to do this." <laughs> yeah. So let's just talk about it with the Ten Commandments in mind and this sort of thing. Now. Uh, um, do you remember Dan? I mean, the, Daniel is probably the closest example to this. So the king made an edict that said, "Hey, you can't pray, uh, or you got to pray to this, you know, statue of the king of Babylon." And um, and Daniel said, "No, uh, I don't think that's true." And he went and he prayed um, to to toward Jerusalem to the true God. Now the point is that was illegal, and it should not, it should not be illegal to pray. But it's a difference between talking about a, the government and also uh, just a. Of, you know, a private business owner um, who, you know, can make provisions for uh, or not make provisions for his workers, depending on his own you know, good pleasure, I suppose. But it was the king who came and uh, said to, uh, to Daniel, it's illegal for you to pray like this, and ended up throwing him in prison. And Daniel said, hey, you can't do that. You can't throw me in prison. No, in fact, he could. Now, it was wrong uh, for the king to, you know, make such unjust laws. But the Christian uh, says, well, I'll, I'll pray, and if it's illegal to pray, I'll suffer the consequences of it. But when we talk about uh, the, uh, a business and a person owning a business, and he can say, hey, I want my employers, for example, to wear uh, pants uh, and instead of the ladies to wear dresses or something like this. Or I can, um, I want you to, uh, to work these hours and not these hours, and I want you to be in this place and not in that place, etc." And uh, an employer uh, ought to be able to make those provisions uh, as he sees fit. And the idea of not, you know, not uh, coming along and saying, hey, you you can't stop your meat cutting to go and pray uh, is, in fact, the prerogative of the person who owns the business. Um, Ought to be, anyway. I I, I think it's interesting that um, we, we say that you must, as an employer... Give me time to go pray, because it is what my religion demands. But if that religion demands you not to make a cake for a gay wedding, then all of a sudden you can be fined up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars. It is ironical. All right, that's going to be all the time we have for this segment of Table Talk Radio. Right after this, Warren Graff, good stuff. I promise. Right after this. tuned in at the worst of all possible times. This is Table Talk Radio. Hey, daily devotions for your family. Around the Word is found at whatdoesthismean.org. Welcome back to Table Talk Radio. Everyone's favorite segment here is Ten Commandments, especially when we have our expert guest on the line, Pastor Warren Graff, Grace Lutheran Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Pastor Graff, welcome back. 
Well, thank you for calling me an expert. It's great to be here. <laughs> well, uh, you you can <laughs> help us the content portion of our show, which is great. <laughs> yeah. You can help us decipher some of these articles because there's this one article about uh, teachers um, who were having their students write about their conversion to Islam. Pastor, do you, uh, do you have that article there? I uh, hear here it is. It's from uh, Todd Starnes or Starnes, I suppose, FoxNews.com. Oh. Students told to write essay on their conversion to Islam, gobsmacked. British moms and dads were fuming after school instructed students to write an essay explaining why they had converted to Islam. Gimma Gauch posted the assignment on Facebook and said her child would not be completing the assignment. Quote, this is not acceptable, she wrote. Kids are too impressionable, and imagine if these letters got in the wrong hands in years to come. The 12- and 13-year-old kids at Bow Camps High School in Guernsey were told to consider what it would be like to become a Muslim. They also had to write a letter uh, to their loved ones ex- explaining their decision to become a Muslim. Can you imagine what the, when the students returned home? Mummy, mummy, I converted to Islam. Cheerio, etc. All right, that's that's the article. Oh man, I, I guess it. Yeah, you can tell it. That one came from England, <clears throat> but of course we've also read accounts similar of uh, certain what experiments at schools here in America. So yeah, what's and, going and on I, here, it, Pastor Graff? Well, and it's it's also complicated by the um, by other reports that have come out of England and other places too, I believe. But where where kids have been asked to recite the um, the, the Islamic creed, which is let me see if I remember right, it's just um, what Allah uh, Allah is one and Muhammad is his prophet. I may be missing a word or two in there, but something like that. And by saying that creed that makes you into a Muslim. That That's there. And so there have been kids who have been coerced into saying that for purposes of schoolwork in in public or, or government-run schools. Um, so when, when, we've, when you say what's going on there, well, I mean, first of all, it's just you can say the but intended Islamic encroachment um, of trying to convert kids into being Muslim by having them say this, this creed, or by having them write a letter about, I have converted. Um, but the other, the other thing is when we look at uh, here, for instance, in our own country, where we're under the Constitution, which uh, has what we speak of having a wall, a wall of separation between church and state, and some have commented, yes, but those words aren't in the Constitution, or, or they're not in the Bill of Rights. But they were in the writings of the Constitution. They were in the writings of Madison, who um, is the chief author of the Constitution. Uh, and before that, Madison had the language of um, of overleaping a barrier. That was in a letter that he wrote with regard to an argument going on in Virginia and with regard to the Virginia State Constitution. So, in other words, you have this idea embedded in our Constitution and in our constitutional language that has followed of there is a barrier between church and state, and you don't leap it. Or there's a wall of separation between church and state. And that comes in then, you know, with the language of um, that, that we have the freedom of religion and, and all of that. So in the case of Madison, what was going on in Virginia is someone had proposed a law that the schools in Virginia would have teachers of religion and that those teachers of religion then would be on the government payroll, on the school payroll. And Madison, um, who was a Christian, now we, we might debate of, of how deep a Christian or whatever, but, but maybe that's not all that helpful to start doing that. Um, but Madison, who's not against the, the proclamation of the church, said that you don't do that. You can't have a government payrolled teacher of religion because then the government becomes the arbiter of religion. In other words, someone has to make a judgment when you hire this teacher, is it going to be a Baptist teacher or, or an Episcopalian, etc. So what we see going on here, and, and I, think it, I think we see the same thing going on with, with what's going on in the schools in England, is this idea that when you have a coercive government that can coerce families into 
bringing their children to a government-run school, then you need to at least have clarity that the government is to make sure that with that coercion they're not doing any teaching of a religion. And as Christians, I think we would, at that point, we would agree with it. Once you've conceded that you're going to have coercive school systems, in other words, where you're where you're coerced into having your children educated in that way, then we would want to say, well, we don't want people coerced into learning, for that matter, even the Lutheran catechism. We don't want a bunch of Roman Catholic children or Baptist children or atheist children taken from their families into this school setting and now forced to learn the Lutheran catechism as if it's their own. So that the teaching, so that we keep this, we keep a, uh, a clean distinction there of what belongs to the government and what belongs to the realm of the church and more specifically the realm of the family. In the case of what's going on in England, I mean, it's clear that to take a child who is Christian or a child, for that matter, who is coming from a secularist family, perhaps an atheist family, and to make that child recite parts of the uh, or recite the whole Islamic creed, or to write something that is in any way um, what engendering them toward the Islamic um, ideological thoughts is immoral. But as Christians, we need to be clear on that. That also means that we may we want to make sure we do not ever use the coercion of government to coerce someone into hearing the Christian proclamation. Would you say this hangs primarily on the first commandment or the fourth commandment? I would say that it hangs in the first case on the fourth commandment. Now, obviously you and I know as Christians that every commandment is is about the first commandment, but but to your question, the place to look at it is we have these children, they belong to the authority, the God-given authority of someone, and we know who that is. It's their parents. If their parents, of course, aren't in the picture by, by death or some, something else, um, th- that doesn't change anything of this. They belong to, to whomever has the authority, to the adoptive parents or to the foster parents or whatever. For someone to be teaching them over against what their parents are giving them is Fourth Commandment stuff and should be considered immoral. What what about um, uh, it's and it seems like this is where a lot of the when we're talking about Ten Commandments in the news, a lot of it comes back to the Fourth Commandment, which institutes both the family uh, and then the state, and that it seems like there's um, in this case it's getting backed up again. It's getting kind of reversed that the state, in this case the schools, uh, the co- as you say the coercive education, does not understand itself in service to the family. Um, but in service to something right. different. What, what is the service well, that the state is doing here? Yeah, and that's where um, it, it does all come back to the Fourth Commandment, I think. So even if you and I are talking about something going wrong, for instance, with, um, let's say, with a, with a police officer and a citizen or something, it ends up coming back to the Fourth Commandment in this way. And, uh, and this, is, this is getting to what you're asking. Luther, when he writes the explanation to the Fourth Commandment, in the large catechism, speaks of how the the teacher in the school is teaching, not according to who that teacher is as a person, but they're teaching as according to being being in the office of the parent, so that you have a parent who is not able, let's say, to teach algebra. Now that could be because they don't know algebra, but it may be that they know algebra, but their vocation is that they're they're building homes. And if you're building homes all day, you don't have time to sit down and teach algebra to your child. So you, you go and you get a teacher who is acting in the office of mother and father. And he, that teacher is teaching that child algebra. And everyone says, well, that's good. That, and, and that is good. In the same way that the police officer who's protecting me, he's protecting me because it is the father who protects his family, the, the mother and the father, but they can't protect their family at all times and in all places. So as you're driving around town, you have police officers who are making sure that families are protected, etc. 
so in that way, the, the school teacher, the highest honor a school teacher can know for himself or herself is not that I'm here because I've been empowered by such and such school board, but rather my honor is much higher than that. I am the authorized servant of the mother and father of this child, and I will make sure that I do nothing to tear apart the fabric of that family by teaching this child over against his parents. Now, that may, there may be weaknesses in that, because a teacher may see that, um, well, for instance, if you have a Christian teacher and the parents are Muslim or um, Mormon or atheist or something, the, the Christian teacher's heart may go out for this child. I wish I could say something to this child about who the true Lord is, to take them away from this, the, the false Lord that they're being taught at home. But the point is, they're not given that office. As Christians, we don't take it upon ourselves to act, act outside of our office. So we speak this gospel. We, we give witness to the hope that is within us when given opportunity, when given proper opportunity. So to the Christian teacher who's teaching perhaps algebra, and she sees a child who is there laboring under parents who are, you know, bringing the child under the... Uh, the idolatry of, of Islam or something, that's not a good thing. And certainly the teacher in his heart of faith can intercede for that child to the Lord. But he's not given to go into that family and sort that out and, and um, tear the fabric of that family. Much better it would be if the family hears the gospel with no coercion, with no one using the coercive power of government to get their kid into a child room, in, into a classroom, say, um, but they hear the gospel with no coercion, and with ears now freely hearing, they're able to hear a Lord who forgives sins, a Lord they've never heard before. We've been talking with Pastor Warren Graff. He's pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Pastor Graff, that's all the time we have, but we thank you for coming on and listening and improving our listenership. Well, I, I I don't know. Did did we take it from from three to four listeners this time? Yeah, because you're listening to us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> very good. Evan, thank you. It's, it's an honor. Thank you it's very much. Good to have you on. And thanks for listening to this edition of Table Talk Radio, where the points are like the grade I got on my conversion to Islam. Essay. Thanks for listening to this edition of Table Talk Radio. Table Talk Radio is not for everyone. Please consult your pastor before listening to Table Talk Radio. Side effects may include nausea, vomiting, headache, heartburn, hair loss, hallucinations, and aversion to incomplete sentences with aquatic imagery, psychosis, coma, death, halitosis, lung cancer, brain tumors, sleep gain, internal bleeding, internal combustion, a sudden craving to smell your backseat, claustrophobia, an uncontrollable urge to fight the Calvinists on Twitter, and falling off your treadmill. For more information, visit tabletalkradio.org.